Good morning, village. Let's find our seats. Stop talking to each other. No, no, that, that, that's a good thing to um, fellowship, and we're glad that we are a family. But we want to come back together and prepare to study God's Word together. And it is my pleasure this morning to introduce Pastor Scott to you. Pastor Scott is a dear brother that many of you will recognize because his family has been around. His daughters were involved in Awana for many years and um, with the OCMA and some other things on campus. But Pastor Scott is a co-pastor over at Community Bible Church and um, just has been an encouragement to me over many years. And um, as we've been able to encourage each other, I hope, and and just co-labor together at different places. And so we have invited Pastor Scott in our Summer Psalms series to present one of the psalms. And so please welcome Pastor Scott. It is a great pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, I deliberated whether to tell this, but I, I guess I will. You know, for years I've been asking Ron for the opportunity to come speak here and and uh, he said, well, you know, let me listen to one of your messages and I'll... And he didn't say anything and so a couple years later I brought it up again and he said, uh, yeah, I'll give another listen. I'm sorry I didn't get back with you and some time passed and finally I said to him, Ron, I want to speak at Village so bad, I'll do it for free. And he said, <laughs> he said now you're ready. <laughs> well, on a little more serious note, <laughs> I bring you greetings from the congregation at Community Bible Church in Anaheim. As uh, Ron said, I'm one of the co-pastors there. For 18 years, I pastored the Bible Church of Buena Park. And about three years ago, we merged with Anaheim Community Church and became CBC. And uh, our churches have a lot in common. We're in the same fellowship of churches. And uh, and it's been a pleasure to get to know Ron and many of the other staff and many of you just in opportunities for it through Awana. And our kids were part of VBA for a while as well. So it's, uh, it's a joy to be with you today. I'd like you to take your Bible and open it to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. The title of our study this morning is Christ, our King, our Priest, our Victor. I grew up in a pastor's home in the Washington, D.C. area, and in the small chapel that was our church building, uh, we had a shallow platform, and um, on the back there were three large, ornate wooden chairs, and I uh, always wanted to sit in them as a little kid, and I was never allowed to. Uh, except after services, and I would go back there and I would sit on it. And of course, when you're a little kid sitting in a big wood chair, what happens? Your legs are just sort of sitting there dangling. doesn't look all that dignified. Sometimes when me and my brothers misbehaved, if you can ever imagine that we might misbehave, sometimes we would be dragged up onto the platform and seated there to face everyone else, the seat of shame for the remainder of the service. And, of course, there's a bit of indignity as you're sitting there with your legs a-dangling. Most chairs are built so adults will feel comfortable, so that their feet can rest on the floor. And you know how it is when you go to a coffee shop or someplace where there's a, uh, an elevated, uh, well, where you have to use a stool, you always prefer to have one with a footrest. Otherwise, you're feeling like that undignified little kid with your feet a-dangling right there. 
Well, the greatest of all chairs, of course, are thrones. And they are highly elevated. And if you are sitting in an elevated chair like that, you must have something for your feet. This is an image of uh, Sennacherib sitting on one of his portable thrones with a portable footstool, an ornate piece of furniture specially crafted for the king. I have us look at that because the passage we'll be reading in a moment tells us about a footstool that King Jesus will have. And it is of something very different. What we're going to see in Psalm 110 is that David foresees Messiah enthroned as divine king and royal priest who will triumph as a holy warrior. I'd like us at this time to read Psalm 110. I'm using the New American Standard. A Psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The Lord give blessing to the reading and study of his word. I want to begin this morning with a little bit longer introduction to Psalm 110. Um, I don't normally have a separate point of introduction, but this psalm is so important that it merits a little bit longer uh, discussion. Consider with me, firstly, the significance of Psalm 110. Psalm 110 contains some of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture. In fact, one of the, the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament comes out of Psalm 110. Isaiah 53 is the most frequently quoted chapter from the Old Testament. But Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most frequently quoted verse from the Old in the New. At least a dozen quotes and I think many more allusions it is quoted by Jesus and Peter and Paul and John and the author of Hebrews. You'll find it in Matthew and Mark and Acts and Romans and 1 Corinthians and Hebrews and Revelation. Almost every time the New Testament quotes from it, it applies it directly to Christ. The New Testament sees this as a prophecy, a messianic prophecy fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. Jesus is the Lord, the my Lord, of verse 1, who is seated at the Father's right hand. And this is the point that Peter makes in Acts 2. It was verse 34. It was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus 
whom you crucified. In addition to the many quotes of Psalm 110, verse 1, verse 4 is also quoted often in the New Testament, particularly in the book of Hebrews, eight times. The author of the book of Hebrews starts to unpack for us this very cryptic reference to the order of Melchizedek, which we'll talk about at some length a little bit later on. So this is a very important passage. Now, having said that, I want us to perhaps fine-tune our expectations a little bit because this text is not a how-to text. This is not a text that tells us something we ought to do. It tells, this is a how much text. This tells us how much glory and worth Jesus has and God's glorious plan. It is a text that should send us to a more devoted life of Christ and magnifying him. Consider with me also the complexity of Psalm 110. This is a psalm that I never quite feel adequate in preaching. Uh, early in my ministry, I began preaching through the psalms somewhat randomly, and I, I would think to myself sometimes, I really want to do 110. And everyone knows verse 1, and then I'd start reading and studying, and I'd think, oh, man, there's, there, there's a lot of complexity here. And so I put it off for 15 years, and I still don't claim to be an expert of all of its intricacies. Uh, Psalm 110 has a lot of difficult decisions. Some of them are regarded translation. For instance, verse 3, commentators say, is perhaps the most difficult Hebrew verse to translate in the book of Psalms. And if you were to compare a half dozen different translations, you might see that. Looking at just one, you won't know, but it is pretty difficult to translate. It's also hard to know sometimes who is speaking. You know, David starts off speaking, and then he quotes Yahweh, and, but when does Yahweh stop speaking? When does David start speaking again? Who's speaking in verse 3? Yahweh or David? Who's speaking in verse 5? Yahweh or David? There's also some cryptic imagery. There's reference to dew and the womb of the dawn. And who is the Lord who's at the right hand in verse 5? We know who it is in verse 1, but what about verse 5? And what is this drinking by the brook along the way in verse 7? Many cryptic images. And then there's questions about the structure of the psalm. Does it have two parts or three parts? I'm working from the principle that there are three parts to it. The handout you have has on the back of it what's called a visual outline chart that you might like to use sometime later in your study. It's a descriptive outline that breaks it up into three segments. So these are just a a small list of interpretive issues. It is good for us to wrestle with these things and to think, to be mindful that there are complexities, but we, we mustn't get too bogged down. The commentator Michael Wilcox has said, to the modern reader, Psalm 110 is full of puzzles, but to the early church, it was full of treasures. And I'm, my prayer is that we will have a sense of the treasury that we have by the time we're done today. Lastly, by way of introduction, think with me about the authorship of Psalm 110. The superscription tells us it is a psalm of David. And this is part of the inspired text. These little headings are not add-ons. David uh, writes this poem not about himself, which is unfortunately an idea that is gaining some traction amongst the commentators. 
he is not speaking about himself. He refers to this other party as my Lord. And Jesus himself makes a great point about this in Matthew 22, verses 42 to 46. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. Ah, see, Jesus stumped them with Psalm 110. (laughs) But he makes a great point. David is not speaking of himself. This is a directly prophetic psalm. There are many psalms for which there are analogies to Jesus or foreshadowings of Jesus that maybe are not direct prophecies. This is a direct prophecy of the Lord Christ. We can't be sure when it was that David wrote it, except that it was would have been after he had conquered Jerusalem in 1003 B.C., There he moved the tabernacle, and from there the temple would be built. There God would cut a covenant with him about an everlasting dominion. Perhaps it was late in his life, as he saw his own failures, uh, when he realized that uh, the greatness of what was promised in that covenant would not be fully realized in his day. And so by the Spirit he looks forward to one greater than him, one who is his son, who is yet also his Lord. Well, now we turn to the psalm itself and an exposition of Psalm 110. Forgive me for turning back now and then. I make sure my clicking has worked. I want you to come with me to verses 1 and 2, where we see David's Lord will be enthroned as a divine king. David's Lord will be enthroned as a divine king. We are introduced firstly to the divine characters who are in session. The Lord says to my Lord. This is actually kind of an abrupt beginning for a psalm. In fact, in the Hebrew text, there is no verb here. It is literally the declaration of Yahweh to my master. It's somewhat like the phrase, thus says the Lord, that's found in the prophets. And look carefully with me at the capital letters. I I think you've been taught this, but most of our English Bibles make a, a typographic change to help us recognize what is meant by Lord in the text. In my Bible, the the first, the Lord, is in all capital letters. And that is a translator's tool to tell you that the Hebrew word behind that is the name Yahweh. As opposed to a few words later when it is my Lord and only the capital L is, only the L is capitalized. That signifies that the, the Hebrew word behind this is Adonai. So it is Yahweh said to my master. This is one, if you will, problem with our English translations that blends them, but there are two persons, clearly two separate persons. Yahweh and then someone whom David calls my master. And he doesn't tell us who this is. This is often the way it is with these Messianic Psalms. You have to keep going before you get some fuller understanding of what's being said. What this psalm says in somewhat cryptic poetry, the New Testament makes clear in the stories of the gospel and the preaching of the apostles that this Lord of David was in fact Jesus, the Messiah. 
The Messiah would be not only the son of David, but also the son of God in the most profound of ways. And the phrase that follows here now in the second part of verse 1 are Yahweh's words of enthronement. Look with me at the royal honors that are bestowed in the second part of verse 1. There's firstly Messiah's enthronement. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In the throne rooms of ancient days, to be able to sit at the right hand of royalty was the highest possible honor. And this is not just that of a guest coming to visit the court. This is a position of co-regency. And the image behind me is a, uh, this is a statue from Egypt and uh, Horus, the Egyptian god, is on the, uh, on the left, on your right. And on the left, that is on his right, is the Egyptian pharaoh. There's the pharaoh seated at this make-believe God's right hand. The idea that he's reigning there along with his God. This was an image and an expression often used in the ancient Near East. The difference, of course, being in this passage is we're dealing with the one who really is the true God. And he is making room for one to sit next to him to rule in his stead. He is the king's, he is God's right-hand man. And the New Testament uses this phrase to teach about Jesus' current reign in heaven, that he is the Father's right-hand man. It was even common in later days in the Roman Empire for when there were, might be two who were functioning as emperor, for them to share the same throne, the same physical throne simultaneously. And while the reign of Jesus is not fully acknowledged on earth, one day heaven and earth will be one. And there will be no doubt about who is in control. In fact, this verse of enthronement indicates that not everyone has yielded to his kingship. There are still enemies who are mentioned at the end of the verse. Those who have not submitted. It is like what Psalm 2 speaks about in verses 1 to 3, where David wonders, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed ones, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, He who sits in the heavens laughs. Laughs. Because it is a fool's errand to oppose the king of glory. Yahweh promises this Lord of David that he will give him one day complete dominion and all his enemies will be placed under his feet. After battle, the victor might place his feet on the neck of conquered foes. Here, though, they are stationed as if they are a royal footstool. Behind me, you see another Egyptian image, and there is a pharaoh. Now, he's seated in the lap of a goddess. But under the pharaoh's feet are eight of Egypt's traditional enemies. There as his footstool. This is an image, uh, this kind of language was common throughout the ancient Near East. One day, Christ will have absolute control. And will totally subdue those who are under him. 
uh, totally subdue all. It is so much better, it is so much better to submit to the Lord Jesus by, by grace, by the influence of grace and faith, instead of have to acknowledge Him in the time of judgment. You know, the Apostle Paul, quoting the book of Isaiah, says that every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no escaping. That submission will come about either by grace or by grave. How much better it is to come to Him by grace. In fact, this passage will speak about those who willingly come after him in a moment. But look with me, uh, one more honor that is bestowed in verse 2. He says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion. Here, the Messiah's triumph is foretold. David is speaking to the Messiah by means of prophecy. Your scepter, your ruling rod. Now, rods, scepters, are ceremonial versions of war maces. Uh, it seems like King Saul preferred to have a ceremonial spear. He's always chucking it at opportune moments. But many kings had had scepters. These were rods. And to have it stretched forth signifies that the area of control expands. From Zion, the hill of Jerusalem where God had uniquely made His presence known in ages past in the tabernacle and the temple, to have it stretched forth means for it to reign, the reign of Zion to be extended beyond uh, that hill to the world around. Verse 2 ends with a statement, rule in the midst of your enemies, which actually could be translated not just as a command, but as a, a prophecy. You shall rule in the midst of your enemies. This word rule is not the normal one used. This is actually an agricultural word. It's the word used for plowing up a field, which you're kind of dominating the ground, or even for the treading of grapes. Feet used to walk and till the ground and stomp the grapes. Used of ruling, it implies complete domination. It is just as verse 1 has the image of the Lord's feet on his enemies, so also his feet are, if you will, walking all over them. In one sense, it's hard for us to appreciate this verse because it doesn't seem to us right now that King Jesus has this kind of dominion. We're gathered here, we love Jesus, but there are many, many other people who aren't gathered anywhere today. And if asked, are they... Do you follow King Jesus? They may not give much of a response. But we live in an in-between time. We live in this time of things where the kingdom of God is expressed, but it's not yet fully realized. We live in a time where King Jesus reigns in heaven with His Father, and He reigns in the hearts of His people, but we do not see Him reigning on the earth. But that time will come. And living by faith means, in part, that we live in expectation of the future. It is what the author of Hebrews says. We do not now see all things under his feet. But the time is coming. So move on with me now to verses 3 and 4, where we see the second movement of this poem, which teaches that this divine king will be installed as a royal priest. 
I mentioned a, a while ago that verse 3 is perhaps the hardest verse in the Psalms to translate, and I'm not 100% certain about the interpretation that I'm going to present to you, but I do think it is the best at, at this point. I, I think that verse 3 goes with verse 4 because they both have a description of, uh, of priestly royalty. In fact, there's a reference to him having these holy garments in verse 3. That prepares us for him being described as a priest in verse 4. The reference to the womb of the dawn and the dew and the youth of verse 3 find a parallel in the statement about him being this forever in verse 4. In verse 3, we note the appealing beauty of his holiness. He has a people who are eager to follow him. Your people, verse 3 says, will volunteer freely in the day of your power. We learn in the first couple of verses that the Messiah has enemies. In this verse, we learn he has a people. And they are not subjugated, not defeated. They are gladly, freely serving him with love and devotion. What the people actually do in their service is not defined here because they are not the focus. He is. Isn't that the way it ought to be in the service of the king? He ought to be the focus and not us. But implied in this is that they will gladly do whatever he wants them to do. Isn't that a, isn't that a great life value for you and me to have? Whatever King Jesus wants us to do, let's do it. To his glory and by his grace, let's do it. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. A reference to that final day. Our holy king enthroned in heaven now will one day come again and fully establish his domain on this earth. It is a day for which we ought to long. We ought to pray for it. Now, the day is fixed. I know it's fixed. The Lord knows that day. No man knows it. But we are taught again and again the value of praying. You know, when we, when we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying in part for Jesus to come back. And how does the Bible end? What's the last prayer of the Bible? Even so, come Lord Jesus. You don't have to be trying to figure out the date of the rapture to be enraptured with the thought that good King Jesus is coming again. What follows in the second half of verse 3 on to verse 4 are we see that he is not only acting as a king, but he has a priestly role. Jesus is not only our monarch, he's our mediator. He is, as the end of verse 3 instructs us, he is filled with holy vigor to lead his people. Verse 3, the middle part, in holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Now, did you understand that? Neither did I. Now, if you think that's hard, take a look at the Hebrew text. Now, this is a translation. This is a very literal translation of verse 3. In the splendor of holiness, from the womb of the dawn, to you, the dew of your youth. Can you see why this is one of the most difficult verses in the Psalms to translate? You, uh, this is intentional. It's not, a, there's no mistake in the way it's written. It forces you as a reader to stop and slow down and meditate on what is being said. How am I supposed to connect these phrases together? 
It is dense with images and metaphors and cryptic beauty. Holy garments, early morning, dew, youth. I like the way that the Christian Standard Bible has rendered this second half of verse 3 in particular. In holy splendor, from the womb of the dawn, the dew of your youth belongs to you. You say, well, that didn't help me much. (laughs) Maybe not, but think on these things. (laughs) The phrase, in holy array, in the splendors of holiness, is the literal rendering, seems to refer to the holy garments that a priest would wear, his vestments. Messiah is here clothed in layers of holiness. Everything he does and every role he has is done perfectly and holily. He is... We're told, from the womb of the dawn. And this is very flowery, poetic talk. The womb of the dawn. Think about this. The womb is the dawn. Sometimes of has the idea of isness. And the idea is that the the dawn is the birthing of the day. That's the idea. From you comes the birth of the day. The glories of a new day, the day of his power that's birthed forth when he comes. And one thing that the dawn, the morning, is known for is dew, an emblem of freshness and newness and life, secretly arriving in the middle of the night and nourishing and freshing everything. Messiah's youth, his youthfulness, is likened to the dew that is birthed forth in the morning. Interesting, the rabbis of later centuries spoke about the dew of resurrection. That there was a life-giving energy that would bring back those from the dead. How relevant that is of the ascended Lord Jesus. Because Jesus in his resurrected state is eternally alive, forever full of vigor. He will never age. By the way, neither will you in your resurrected state. He forever full of youth and power and vigor. And this enables him to be this priest forever, as verse 4 speaks. Verse 4 speaks about the kingly authority of his priesthood. This verse, verse 4, is quoted eight times in the book of Hebrews. It is used in the heart of the book of Hebrews to explain the supremacy of the priestly ministry of Jesus. The high priestly ministry of Jesus is something which doesn't get a lot of airtime as it does. We speak much about his kingship, uh, but not as much, perhaps, as we ought to about his priesthood. He was installed by the most sacred oath. Verse 4 begins, The Lord, that is Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. So Jesus became a priest not by who his parents were or what his lineage was or being part of a particular tribe. He was installed as a priest by the direct act of God. God installed him by oath. Uh, God doesn't need to use oaths when he speaks what he says is yes and uh, is yes and amen. But when God secures his word with an oath, oh, what, what attention we need to give to what he's saying. An oath implies with it a curse that if what one says is false, then may death come upon him. God calls down the prospect of death on himself if this is not true. 
God pledges with the highest affirmation that he will install and honor the priesthood of Jesus. It is an unconditional, absolute, irrevocable oath. Jesus will forever be our priest, forever our intercessor, forever he will be our man in heaven. Isn't that great? This is something that was not true of David. David was no priest. Oh, there are times when David uh, offici- uh, well, when he authorized sacrificial worship, but he was not a priest of any kind. In fact, the kind of priest that the Messiah is said to be is a most unique kind of priesthood. The end of verse 4 says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This is perhaps one of the most peculiar sounding statements in the Old Testament. Who is Melchizedek and what is his priesthood? And what does it mean to be a priest in the order of his priesthood? And how can you be a priest forever? Who can do that? Aaron died. Aaron's sons died. Aaron's grandsons died. You get the idea. Melchizedek is a little known character who pops Out of nowhere in the stories of Abraham in Genesis 14, Abraham, at that time, Abram, his name was then, was in his 80s. He had gone to the promised land and found it to be not so promising. Found himself engaged in a number of wars. And he's still waiting for him to to have this son whom God had promised, through whom he would have a great nation, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And After routing these Mesopotamian invaders, Abraham is met by the king of Salem, another name for Jerusalem, whose name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king priest, a Canaanite man who had a true knowledge of the Most High God, and he pronounced a blessing on Abraham, reinforcing to him the earlier promises of God, that this still was a promised land. And Abraham, recognizing him as an authority and God's man, paid a tithe to him from the loot that he had taken. Fascinating. Nothing else is said about him for 1,000 years until this psalm. And nothing else in the Bible is said about him for another 1,000 years until the book of Hebrews. That's a lot of dead time. And it generated all sorts of questions and theories. And if you read the, any of the writings from the period between the Testaments, there's all sorts of bizarre things about who Melchizedek was. The Bible doesn't speak very much to it. Even the author of Hebrews marvels at who he is and where he came from. He shows up out of nowhere and we don't know who his family was and so on. But the point of analogy, the only thing we really need to know is that Melchizedek was a unique kind of priest and a unique kind of king. The only kind that God allowed to be the same together. Uh, The law forbade the kings of Israel from taking on the priestly mantle. So this is something functioning outside the law. Some other kind of priesthood. Christ serves not only as our king, but as our priest forever, with no danger of his work ever being imperiled by his demise. And he is seated at God's right hand where he is not only the king in waiting, but as Hebrews explains so beautifully, he is our intercessor. This king 
who will reign over God's kingdom is also a priest who sanctifies all who are in his realm. Now, his work is not described here, only his office. To know his work, we must go on to the other pages of Scripture, onto the pages of the Gospel and the preaching of the Apostles, where we find that this king priest offers himself to sanctify his people and to secure for them a place in the everlasting kingdom. Much more I could say, but I can't. Let's go now to the last segment of the psalm, verses 5 through 7. This king priest will be triumphant as a holy warrior. Look closely with me at verse 5 and note the way that the word Lord is spelled. The Lord is at your right hand. Notice it's spelled the same way as the second reference to Lord back in verse 1. The Master is at your right hand. So now the question is, who is talking and who's being spoken to? And some of our versions understand that uh, uh, David is speaking to uh, Messiah and saying, now Messiah, as you're going to go out, know that Yahweh is with you. But I think it's better to understand this in the same sort of seating chart that we had earlier, that he is, David is speaking to Yahweh about the one seated at his right hand. You could translate it this way, the Lord, the one at your right hand, the Lord enthroned at your right hand will shatter kings in the day of his wrath, he is going to thoroughly vanquish all of his foes. That master who is seated at your right hand, Yahweh, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He is coming to complete his victory and to fully secure his kingdom. He will, verse 6, he will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. So again, I think the best way to understand verse 5 is that he's speaking, David is speaking to Yahweh about the Messiah, and the Messiah who is at Yahweh's right hand will do this. He will shatter them, smite them, beat them to pieces. This is graphic imagery. Um, This is, by the way, not the good news. Now, it, it is good news in a way. It is good news that Jesus wins. That is good news. But this is not the primary message that we are tasked to deliver to people. Nonetheless, it is part of the broader message of God. There is, in fact, coming a day of utter victory where King Jesus will prevail. We wish it were not so that there were enemies of him, but there are, and there are many who will not turn. He will judge among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will... Shatter the chief men over a broad country. Literally, that Hebrew phrase is, he will shatter the head. One head. A number of interpreters have noted that there's a similarity between this phrase and what's said about the crushing of the serpent's head in Genesis 3. You... God says to the serpent, you shall bruise his heel. And then what's the rest say? And he shall crush 
your head. And some have seen that perhaps there is a faint echo of that earliest of prophecies here. That the one who will crush the serpent's head, this head of all the enemies, is in fact the king priest. These prophecies, I believe, here in Psalm 110 are entirely eschatological. They are futuristic. They are of the end time. I don't believe that these verses are describing the progress of the gospel here and now, though there are fights to have and there are victories to be won for sure. But this is, I believe, a poetic description of of the end of time, of Armageddon and the events connected with it. It sounds frightful and unpleasant. There's perhaps a part of us that cringes a bit. You know, I I have in my library a a book called the, uh, let's see, what's the exact name? Maybe maybe I shouldn't tell you, but uh, uh, a a Christian, something like a Christian version of the Psalms, where all of the offensive verses are taken out. So Psalm 110 is a lot shorter. That's not good, is it? This passage is celebrating the ultimate triumph of good over evil, of God over the devil. That should give us confidence in God's plan, that no matter how things, how bad things get here and now, how much friction we receive here and now, how many, how much lost ground we seem to experience within culture, the battle is not done. And in the end, it is not up to us. There is a glorious end in which all evil will be put down. Look with me lastly at verse 7, where we see that he will relentlessly pursue total victory. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. This first half of the verse is a little difficult. I mean, it's not hard to know what drinking from a brook is, but what does it refer to? Why is he drinking by a brook? Some have thought that this is a allusion to an enthronement ceremony. When Solomon was crowned as king at Jerusalem, David arranged it that they went down to the Gihon Spring, the place where David's men had first infiltrated Jerusalem and took it over. And there, at that spring, that fountainhead, Solomon was crowned. Perhaps this is some connection to that, that... uh, Just as the dynasty continued in that place of victory, so also he will forever be in this place of victory, perhaps. Or maybe it means, maybe it means is that as he's pursuing his enemies, as they scatter left and right and front and back, that he doesn't stop to set up camp and, you know, get the dinner going. He just scoops up the water that he needs and on he goes and relentlessly pursues them until victory is won. David himself actually did something like this. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 30, verses 9 to 10. Whatever that exact image is, the final image is very clear as verse 7 ends. Therefore, he will lift up his head. It's the posture of victory. You see it every Sunday afternoon in Major League, Major League, uh, National Football League, NFL games. Team wins, up is the head. What are the guys who just lost? Down goes the head. (laughs) You see it out in nature all the time whenever there's horned animals that are rutting against each other. The winner has his horns up high and the losers skulk off. 
King Jesus is forever going to have his head high. And if you are his, so will you as he brings you in the train of his victory. David foresees the Messiah enthroned as a divine king and a royal priest who will triumph as a holy warrior. There's a gospel song, an old hymn, really, that I, I love to sing. It's one of my favorites. I've toyed with whether to say play this at my funeral, but I'm probably too young to be talking about that. This is my father's world. Do you know that? Do you know that hymn? One of, my, one of the lines I love the most. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven shall be one. Father, we thank you for the glories of this passage and what it foresees in the great victory of King Jesus. We thank you that by grace we have come to know him and love him and to willingly come behind him. It is our heart's desire to please him to do whatever it is He wishes us to do, to be what He wishes us to be. And as we pray for that great day to come, the day of victory, the day of His return, the day of the reordering of this world which is so broken, as we await that day, may we be busy making known the glories of this King, this One who is also the priest, who has given Himself up as a sacrifice, that all who believe in Him might be saved and find everlasting life and glory in Him. In that precious name we pray. Amen.